Brilliant Minds is so much more than a two-day creativity and thought leadership gathering in Stockholm, Sweden. It's a 365-day year-round journey. The journey of our founders, Daniel Eck of Spotify and Ash Pornori of At Night. The journey of our board, team members, the young entrepreneurs we meet year-round whose ideas will change the world. It's also my journey. My journey as CEO, as a working mother, as a wife and sister, as the child of immigrants, as a person who truly believes that bringing people together and uplifting each other's great stories can make the world better. This podcast is that personal journey. Brilliant Minds is about building community everywhere we go and sharing the bold voices in that community who are not afraid to challenge the way things have always been done in order to create things that have never been imagined before. In this podcast, I hope you join me in cities around the world, where I will exclusively interview some of the most creative people, men and women, young and old, across all sectors, fashion, art, tech, music, science, business, food, health, people that share the values of brilliant minds, rooted in transparency, gender equality, social justice, compassion, a love of the environment and mankind, people that aren't afraid to use their voice for change. Follow me at other great tech events, art summits, media gatherings, where I will give you an inside scoop on where the future is going and how you can help shape it. Join me in the Brilliant Minds podcast on the go around the world. I can't wait to hear what you think. times have you heard from CEOs and leaders that they would love to have a woman on their board? Absolutely great idea, but they just can't find one. <laughs> I've certainly heard this response many, many times, and so has Sukinder Singh Cassidy. But unlike me, she decided to do something about it. In May 2015, the former Google and Amazon executive published an open letter titled Tech Women Choose Possibility challenging the tech community to increase the rate of progress for women in the industry by leveraging its wealth of existing female talent. The letter was co-signed by 59 female entrepreneurs and investors. Soon after this blog post went viral, she decided to launch the board list, which is basically a digital platform or a LinkedIn for women aimed to eliminating the pipeline excuse often used to explain the lack of diversity. By presenting an easily accessible list of well-vetted professional women, the ball will be in the court of investors and executives. Essentially, she is digitalizing diversity. Born in Tanzania, Singh grew up in Canada. She's currently on the board of Ericsson and TripAdvisor and running Joyous, an e-commerce site, in addition to the board list. Sikinder and I sat down at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., where she was speaking at the Women in Public Service Project, five-year anniversary on how we can translate lessons from the private and tech sector to government when it comes to women's leadership. One of the keys for Sukinder is to find the intersection of where our passion and our purpose come together. In this interview, hear how she found that intersection, her failures and successes, and much, much more. 
Sikander is one of my all-time role models, and this interview is really special. So please enjoy and share. I'm here with Sukinder Singh Cassidy, someone that I really admire and who's been a serial entrepreneur and really kind of, I think, extremely forward on the issue and the question that at least drives me mad. <laughs> Why aren't there more women in leadership positions? I can't find them. <laughs> She's actually professionalized that question. Um, Sukinder, tell, tell me a little bit about what you talked about here today. Why do you think this effort is important, the Women in Public Service Project, and how are you using tech through the board list mm -hmm. to solve some of that issue and that annoying question that we hear often? Right. So I think, look, I think we all wish that uh, public and private sector had together made more progress, even independently had made more progress. But the numbers are low for women in leadership in both areas, right? So I think this is this is an opportunity, and today is an opportunity for one side to learn from the other. If there are, if there are lessons to be learned that can help advance the cause of women in public policy, um, can they be learned from the private sector? And quite frankly, I'm here for the same reason, which is the converse. What can I learn, right, that um, helps us even in the private sector? When you ask the sort of bigger question, why do we need more women in public policy? Well, let's just step back. I mean, as it is in the private sector, we think about women as core consumers for all the products we kind of buy, as it is in public service. I mean, women are 50% of the population, more than 50%. They are the economic breadwinners. We know they now account for more GDP than men. Uh, in the United States, and they are the largest kind of consumer of public services, whether that is caregiving services, health services, right? They are making decisions for their families um, in their public life, right, or in their in the life that is supported by their governments as much as in the lives that are, you know, in the products they buy for their homes that are, you know, that are the work of the private sector. So, um, we need more women in, in government to represent all of the issues for women as consumers of services and, quite frankly, women as growers of the U.S. GDP. I mean, it boggles my mind because we have all these facts. I mm -hmm. mean, it's, you know, if you listen to women speaking in the 60s and 70s, the tone is actually quite similar. Mm -hmm. We need women. We need it for economic reasons. We're going to reach a tipping point. They represent the family. It's yes. about education. I've been listening to a lot of talks, you know, by Gloria Steinem and different podcasts from that era, especially yeah. post-election now, just mm -hmm. to learn. And, and the tone is quite <laughs> similar. similar. Yes. Um, even with, you know, impact funds and different things like that, there were women that were running these funds. And 20 years ago, you know, I think it was about 2.7% of capital went to women run mm -hmm. startups. It's 3% now. Yeah, it's, it's gone up 0.3% right. in yes. 20 years. Yes. So I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but I want to ask, why is it so damn slow? And are we really moving forward? Right. Some people say we're not, <laughs> that there was more excitement and cohesion 20 years ago, and women were pol politically more relevant, especially young women. I yes. think the millennial question is interesting. But it's a big question. Where are we going? Are we going fast enough? Give right. me some optimism. <laughs> yeah, sure, reason for optimism. So first of all, to answer the question, I think everybody would agree that the progress hasn't been fast enough. So I think to turn your question another way, what will accelerate the rate of progress from here, right? Why is there a reason to believe that um, there will be forward progress? Well, so I think a couple of things, a couple of things are different 20 years ago than they were today. 20 years ago, you know, I would say that women were, had the potential to be the economic breadwinner. They now are, right? So I think, like, 
the family dynamic is changing in a way that allows women to participate in leadership more. So what happens when you become an economic breadwinner versus just having the potential mm-hmm. to be one? You can negotiate at home for child care. You can negotiate with your husband on who stays Very home, true. right? Yes. There are a set of things that give women um, economic freedom for women in this country has finally arrived mm-hmm. as small business owners, as major breadwinners, and that in turn leads to conversations within, I think, their home and whole life that makes it possible for them to lead. And I mean, very specifically here, I am talking about things like caregiving. I am talking about things like um, being able to afford, you know, child care outside or inside the home. I'm talking about the negotiation, as I said, mm-hmm. with your husband for the first time on who stays home. Yeah. It's not so obvious anymore that the person who stay home should be a woman, <laughs> right? So, what does that release? That, I think, frees up. Once women have negotiating power in their personal lives, I think it frees up the capacity for them to lead. Now, the question is, well, they may have the capacity to lead, mm-hmm. i.e. feel like it is something they can do in addition to being a mother and a caregiver, right? That it is possible for them to be a CEO or, quite frankly, a congresswoman. So I think the one piece that has fundamentally shifted is we are at, you know, we have, like, we are at an economic uh, we're in an economically more leveraged position. That's despite the fact, that, by the way, that you know pay equity still is not a reality. So women have more economic power, and I think that's the one reason to be hopeful. Then you sort of turn to the other side of the equation. You say, okay, well, what tools and resources do they need, right? So if women you know, have more capacity to be in, in powerful positions, I think there are two or three things that still need to happen. Number one, we know we need to build the pipeline of women into those positions. So in the public sector and the private sector, people say, where are all the women, right? You know, we can use things like technology, like we do at the board list, to start to surface, right, who are the qualified women, right? Where are they? I mean, it's not that women aren't qualified, it's that we need to find them, right? And then I think the third piece is, it's not a question of just finding them. In many cases, still, it's a question of recruiting them. And, you know, and so we would like to be in a world where for every available job that was open, women were self-applying at a rate of 50 per 60%. We hear consistently that even when a job is available, public or private, right, um, that women won't apply unless they are 100%, 95% certain they have all the skills. Men will apply whether they have the skills or not. Um, and I, so I think this last piece is like it will take active recruitment in building a pipeline of women for a public office, for um, private sector leadership, for the next CEO job, for the next board. You know, we have to, you know, I think, and you hit the question of millennial women, I think as women who are in positions of economic power or growth or what have you, our job is to reach out to those women, and if it takes active recruitment from women and men leaders to get a next generation of women to step up and to sort of give them, uh, confidence is not the right, is not the right word, but encourage them, Mm -hmm. right, to consider these options for themselves. Um, I think that that's one last piece. So you've got technology and pipeline building in there. You've got education, um, economic development. And then you've got really pretty active recruitment. So this problem isn't going to just solve itself. You know, I don't think it's we're going to be sitting here. I think it's going to take, you know, and of course what helps there, what does help there is the examples of women who've been successful. So, of course, what you have now is you can look at an Indra Nuri or you can look Mm -hmm. at a Jeannie Ramanetti or you can look at a Sheryl Sandberg or you can look at a Hillary Clinton or you can look at a Kristen Gillibrand and you can see examples of women who are doing that. And so, obviously, as we try and create more examples, um, we need to actively recruit women, but there there is a set of success right, that is as large as any man has had and as impactful. So 
it's a multifaceted journey and it's going to, you know, it's not going to fix overnight. Um, the, maybe the most hopeful I am, and I don't know about you, but I have young children. Uh, I have millennials in my workforce. The one thing I can tell you is they don't see the same barriers that we see, right? For my children, it was not even a notable event that an African-American made it to president in the United States, right? For my millennial workforce, certainly they have all grown up with not just working mothers, but mothers who are, you know, were out of the home for the majority of their, you know, of their upper years. It's not unusual for them to expect diversity from day one in the workplace. In fact, it's probably more unusual to hear about the cases of a, you know, historically very traditional upbringing where, you know, mom stayed home and, you know, raised them completely and dad went to work and there was no gender um, exchange in the home, right, on who was doing what. So I, I think I am hopeful that millennials have a different expectation and a different normal, and that normal, you know, will also yield, uh, will yield uh, more reasons for optimism. Do you think that we'll really see that, though? I mean, I'm, I'm on the old side of a millennial, but I'm yeah. 31. I have a 7-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. And I remember I moved to Washington at 22. My first job was in John Kerry's press office. I yes. was the first digital media hire. Like, yeah. everything was so progressive. Pregnant had the baby by 25, and my world kind of fell apart. I also never saw uh -huh. any kind of gender bias. Yes. Never. Like, in never. my yes. general, I was the class president, and, like, yes. women were always, guys were the lackeys. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yes, for yes, lack of yes, a better yes. word, yes. copying other people's term papers and doing yes, all. Yes. Women were really doing it all. Yes. Um, and then I see also in some of my peers, like, they've fallen out. You know, they, right. they get off the track, and maybe they want to, and that's a choice, but... I think I have also lived abroad now in mm -hmm. Sweden. I've come back, and it's really <laughs> seeing 480 days of shared parental leave, yes, seeing yes. subsidized daycare, yes. seeing that you have 60 days of sick leave for your kid as oh a parent, gosh. and then coming here and really seeing, like, there is nothing. We still call it sick leave yeah. when you have a baby. Maybe right. not in San Francisco, but I'm in D.C. here and in New York, and it's tough. And I say this long diatribe preface here because – you, You're know, not you sure. mentioned Sheryl Sandberg, all these women. You're super successful. Yep. You're very driven. You know, mm -hmm. how, how did you kind of put together your puzzle? Yeah, well, I think two things. So first of all, I just want to hit on some of the points you mentioned. So you said, look, you feel like you mm -hmm. are, and you are a millennial, and he's had a super successful uh, career to date, and you see women falling out. To your point, if you fall out by choice, that is also okay. Absolutely. But by the way, you have the economic choice, right? I mean, and that is, and that's an amazing place to be, to be in a family where there's that's the economic choice point. to stay home. That is, is it. itself yes. a progressive choice, right? So I don't think, I don't fault women ever for choosing to take mm -hmm. the job in the house, which is as hard a job. My only point is gender stereotypes have changed for millennials. And I think, mm -hmm. and I think your daughter, witness your daughter, is going to have seen a completely different set of, um, career choices mm -hmm. amongst you and your husband who mm -hmm. both have made career transitions who've both traveled you know multiple cities mm -hmm. right as I know in the public and private sector so she already is going to be gender confused on like who you know in a good Wonderful. way in yes. a good way right I mean to her it's like mom works dad works like you know dad stays home mom yeah. stays home like you know who's taking me to school I'm not sure but I'm not sure is a very acceptable answer and it's a and it's a good thing right um, so let me just say that I mean I think of the case of of my own uh, career, you know, look, I, I, I think I am um, maybe in some ways an example of sort of what I've said, which is I didn't get married late by choice, but I happened to sort of, you know, I got married when I was 34. By that point, I was well established in my mm -hmm. career. I already had some um, 
level of success mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley. Um, and I got you know, and I got married late, and I had children at 36. Again, not by choice. It's mm-hmm. just the way it worked out. But it did so happen that by the time I had my first child, I was in a position mm-hmm. of uh, I was an executive at Google, and so I had a lot of negotiating power at work. Um, meaning I walked into my boss's office and said, hey, I'm having my first child. I'm running half the globe right now, everything from China to Brazil. And the only way I can make this job work is if you guys pay for my nanny and my daughter to travel with me full time. And they said yes, right. But this can, this comes to kind of a negotiation. But, asked. but I asked. I went in and asked for something that was not the policy. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind in tech, of course, talent management and human capital management is everything, right? And the cost to lose me was potentially higher than the cost to give me what I, I wanted. At the same time, I had to negotiate at mm-hmm. home. And why did I have the power to negotiate at home? Because economically, I was, you know, a major contributor Absolutely. to our household. So My sister-in-law, Mika, always says... Right. Talks, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I always, say, I always say to people when I'm interviewed, like, marriage is also a negotiation. Mm-hmm. And so in order to make that career work, I spent a long time at home negotiating for the things we needed to make it work for our family, whether it was a nanny, whether it was traveling with my daughter and, and nanny and being away from home for large periods of time, whether it was saying I'm not going to travel for half a year and I'm going to be home and send other people out, you know, in my stead. And so, but marriage was a negotiation. Mm-hmm. It was and is uh, a success, you know, a negotiation between two parties who both need to make it work and so I sort of I feel like I've only been able to make it work because I had access to um, economic opportunity and because I had economic opportunity I had economic choices Mm -hmm. and I had leverage in all of my conversations and then um, and then I asked it's so often about asking it's I think I think think asking is everything asking is everything if you don't ask you don't know and you you know you don't you can't set any new boundaries or conditions you sort of set conditions on yourself without ever asking and you may set a whole new boundary or or break a boundary by asking and not just for yourself but for others too and so I think there is a lot of power in asking um, and a lot of power in sort of identifying what it takes to make it work for you tell me about First, what got you to the point where you said, I'm going to really do something about women on startup boards? Because uh, you mentioned a lot of top women. Yep. You don't have to be doing what you're doing. You mm-hmm. already run a full-time company, Joyous. Yes, yes, yes. You also run another one simultaneously yes, yes. That, that is very transformative and passionate. What got you to that tipping point, I'd, yep. I'd call it? And what has the journey been like? I mean, it's still new. Yes, of what course. What do people respond? Mm-hmm. What kind of feedback do you get? Do people believe that they need to do this? Yes. Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, or they're both great questions. So, uh, look, I think for most uh, for most of my career in Silicon Valley, I've been there almost 20 years, I have really felt like I was at home. Like I, I, I arrived in a place where my DNA fit. I love innovation. I, um, I'm a business development executive by background. I love to sell. I love to sell vision. Um, and so I have largely, I felt, been the recipient of a highly meritocratic culture and, and participated there and hopefully thrived. Um, however, two things became evident to me. Number one, for a long part of my career, I thought if I'm just successful and I put my head down and I set a good example, that's enough for other women. Um, but maybe a couple of years ago, I just felt like the narrative, particularly in the press, mm-hmm. on gender equity in the Valley was so negative. It was sort of like, where are all the women? What are they doing? And I had a latent frustration for two reasons. Number one, um, I, you know, I personally knew many women who've been successful. And from my perspective versus 20 years ago, the number of women starting companies, you know, while on a, a relative percentage basis may not be as high as we'd like to see it, on an absolute basis, 
is climbing mm-hmm. dramatically. I mean, when I started my first company, I was 27 in, in 1999. I, I couldn't find another woman star, a woman star founder to save my life. Now all mm-hmm. around me are dozens and dozens mm-hmm. of women who are making choices out of great schools like Harvard yeah. and other places to not take a traditional route and to start companies. And so I felt like the, although the narrative, uh, although the numbers are not great, the narrative was so negative that it risked discouraging women from ever entering tech. And that to me was a problem because I felt like the participation rate for the women who are doing these things and their, um, if you ask them for their perspective on whether or not entrepreneurship was a good choice or tech was a good choice, I suspect they would tell you the answer is yes, mm-hmm. violently yes, despite the fact that the numbers aren't what they want to be. So I was getting frustrated with the narrative and my own personal journey and the journey of other women founders and executives I felt um, was worth sharing mm-hmm. to encourage women despite sort of all of the um, negative press to consider, uh, you know, consider a career in tech because, you know, while we talk about what limits us, you know, being an entrepreneur is one of the most unlimiting things you can possibly do, right? I mean, it's sort of, oh, it's a very limitless thing. It's a way of controlling your own destiny entirely, right? So, um, uh, so I, and like I said, even exec, even um, uh, being an executive in Silicon Valley for me has been a pretty extraordinary journey with companies that are progressive, right? I mean, that tech bias may be a problem, agenda bias may be a problem, but there's no doubt that when you surface that, you know, there's technology and smart people looking to kind of create solutions. So that was one piece. The second piece was, which is more personal, and I think you asked this question, is although my career has been largely positive, at the very beginning of my career in Silicon Valley, I had a highly negative gender uh, gender experience. And, you Can know, people... Can you pe- tell me about Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about it. I certainly talked about it in a blog post on Medium. Um, mm-hmm. And, and um, I'll describe the situation. And what I can tell you is it was my very first job in the Valley. And had I taken that signal and left, mm-hmm. I would never have had the career I had. Mm-hmm. So over 20 years, it's been remarkably positive. But the first six months was so negative that I questioned whether I belonged in the Valley at all. And so I'm like, wow, if that's my experience. And I've had one out of 20. Imagine what it's like for other people. So there is truth in the issue of gender bias. And um, so the story is as follows. I had moved from... Uh, London, where I was working for British Sky Broadcasting, and I'd previously worked for Merrill Lynch in investment banking in New York and London. And so I had about five or six years of working in history, and I had had extraordinary bosses, all men, by the way, um, who had promoted me and mentored me, and I and now I've sort of, uh, I've obviously at that time considered myself quite a rock star, <laughs> whether it's right or wrong, but people definitely, you know, had supported me and my success. And I moved to Silicon Valley uh, when I was uh, in my late 20s, and I ended up working for a, a company, I won't tell you who, I never say the name, but a company where I had a male boss. And on the second, on the second day out of my, the job, he pulled me aside and told me that I scared the secretaries. And I said, what could I have possibly done to scare the secretaries? I've only been here a day and a half. Like, did I walk into the bathroom wrong? Like, like what a thing to say to a young female employee. And, I'm, and I didn't even know what I'd done. And in the ensuing weeks and months, um, I had been hired for a business development task, and I'd been used to getting these jobs in very male industries, media and investment banking, where I kept getting promoted and giving more and more responsibility. And so I walked into this job, and I was hired as a business development director, which meant I should be working on strategic partnerships. And um, my boss kept giving me very menial things, like doing marketing brochures. And I was like, why am I writing a marketing brochure? Like, I just came out of situations where, I mean, 
from investment banking, I was like helping companies IPO. I was in the room with CEOs. I mean, you know, at Sky, I was in the chairman's office. I mean, I was working with the CEO and CEO of the company. Like, what, you know, how could it be that I come to this progressive place and I'm getting these increasingly menial tasks? And at the same time, um, uh, another person on the team who reported to this, this, the same gentleman I reported to was much more senior, was a media exec and uh, a him and highly emotionally volatile, like a screamer. And he kept getting rewarded and placated. And there was a time when the two of us were supposed to work together on something and he complained and, could, you know, whatever. And so I sort of just got pushed out of the project. And I was like, and I saw this behavior from a male getting rewarded and I was getting lectured. And, and, and I didn't really understand why. And so I remember being really depressed. I remember kind of confronting my boss about it at some point. And where I just remember we're outside in the cold by his car, and he was telling me that I was like the rookie on his football team that he needed a coach, <laughs> you know, into like behaving properly and or, or being a part of the team. And I was like, but wait a second, I've been on other teams and I've been, I've been not only just fine. People have told me I'm extraordinary. So what can, what's going on here? Um, and I think maybe a month after that, somebody came in to do interestingly sexual harassment and gender bias <laughs> training at the organization in question. And I remember being so upset. I, I sat, I asked for a one-on-one -on -one with the person who was doing the training and I sat in a room with them. I was like, this is my experience here. Like, is this discrimination? Like, I'm not really sure what's going on, but it doesn't feel very good. And she didn't really give me a solid answer, but I was really perturbed and I decided to quit. And uh, a month later, and I, and, I quit, and I really thought, wow, maybe I'm not suited to the Valley. Maybe I'm never meant to do business development. I just really, something must be wrong with me. Um, um, I started interviewing other places. A month later, I ended up joining a young startup called Jungly that was an extraordinary experience where I went over and did BD. And not only did I do BD well, it was one of kind of the defining success areas of the company. And six months later, Amazon acquired us and I was a key part of the acquisition and I got to go to Amazon. And, and I built my entire career in business development. And from that point forward, I had champions again. But that singular experience, I was just like, I just arrived in the Valley, and I, I felt like I hit the, the, the most gender bias I'd ever experienced in my career. So I thought, wow, so that's me 20 years later, and I can still remember that experience vividly. What if you're the person who has that experience? That is your only experience. What if you fear coming for that stereotype? So I knew just enough to know that it was true and personal. Um, enough optimism and good success in the Valley to feel like that is not the entire narrative. It's not my entire narrative. Like it's one story out of hundreds of stories I could mm -hmm. tell you, right? But it is an important one. And so I think those two things it's led so me to start formative. the board list. It was formative. And so, um, so that's a long-winded way of, of sort of telling you why I decided to sort of get off the sidelines and start because I had just enough scars from that <laughs> to remember um, and wonder what would have happened if I had just turned around and left based on that one experience and not wanting to see that happen to young women. Um, and encouraging them to get in, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and to, uh, that the journey will be far more than that. Like, look, I can just tell you, the journey of entrepreneurship is far more than that one experience. Not to negate it, but it's far more than that. Um, so the board list is about a year and a half old. Uh, you know, the response has been tremendous. Uh, and I think the response has been tremendous for a, a couple of reasons. Look, look, we all, whether you're in Silicon Valley, whether you're in DC, whether, you know, I choose to believe that people are inherently good <laughs> and, um, and want to do the right thing, right? I don't think people walk around with malevolence or an intent for bias or, you know, or intent to, intention to put down women or any of those things. That's not my worldview. But my worldview is that people are busy. People want to help. 
people need finite solutions. The busier you are, the more you want to help, but the more limited your time. And you need to be handed, you know, easy ways that you can make a contribution. And so the idea for the board list was very simple. It's like, look, everybody knows somebody, uh, someone who deserves to be on a board who's a woman. And on the other hand, we keep hearing that they're, where are all the women who are qualified, oh, right? We hear that all the time. We hear it all the time. And so I was like, look, let's, let's, you build a platform that can crowdsource the answer, like, and, and by, and, and just go ask key leaders, men and women, hey, would you tell us, would you tell us um, any great women you know of and could recommend for boards? And so I think the response has been positive because it, it, it involves men and women. Mm -hmm. um, it's moved the narrative from negative to positive, like there's something you can do here. Um, and it's very finite and manageable, mm -hmm. right? It's not so like esoteric that people can't understand what they're supposed to do to make a difference. Exactly. <laughs> and so I think we, we really wanted to launch it as sort of a point solution. Yes, there's a much broader philosophy on women in the boardroom. Um, and so it's overall going well. The, the Look, the hard work to be done here, to be clear, is not in collecting the names of women who are qualified. By the way, today the board list has 1,200 plus women who've already been identified. The real work is actually, in, t in the case of tech, helping people understand the benefits, not of diversity on your board, but of actually just having a strong board. Mm -hmm. And so everybody sees the research on board diversity. But you know, founders are really, I mean, they're busy at a whole other level. I know you know that because you've done work with Spotify. I mean, you know, tech founders are so busy dealing with so many different things. It's like any startup founder, and you're like, wait, I need to deal with my board too? So we spend a lot more time, you know, quite frankly, we spend less time talking about the value of sort of a woman versus a man. We spend far more time educating startups on how to construct great boards, of which diversity is one part of constructing a great board. Really interesting. I mean, the board list is one of a kind. Yeah, well, thank um, you. It's nice of absolutely. you to say. Lots of work to do, and then lots of work to do, and obviously take it global. But I think it's simple, and it's metric-based, and it's serious, yes. and yes. I think digestible and that's digestible so that's the key this. i mean there was a time where a year ago i said i'm not getting involved in any more women's things yeah yeah because it's you know, uh, they're it's just very talking it's just kind of self-pity and i eat my own words saying that now yes. because i think there is a lot of value of course in hearing stories of course hearing and telling stories makes me feel like i'm not alone well, wait, and, yeah, and telling your awful story things right. happen to me and it's easy to get deflated and i think a lot of it is confidence and feeling supported so did awful things happen to you oh yeah do you ever talk about them on your podcast? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. So give me an this example. This was not about me. I think moving in, this is why I'm doing this at yes, the yes, Wilson yes. Center. I, I do think that although government has the greatest power, a lot of it is about visibility and shining a light on people. And mm -hmm. no other platform, no, much, no matter how much you bitch and complain about government, which I do, it's yes. so rigid, it's so conservative, mm -hmm. nothing can convene, bring people together and... There's no platform like in the world, especially yes, the Obama White House. Yes. I'm sorry to say it's yes. true, or Hillary Clinton, or yeah. you know, the past few years, what we've had. Mm -hmm. um, but going abroad and, and landing in an embassy and mm -hmm. hearing that although we had a Secretary of State in Hillary Clinton who dubbed something called economic statecraft around empowering women, mm -hmm. that I have no role there because women's issues are not foreign policy issues. Mm. I was told that often by a woman. Oh, wow. Um, I remember when Secretary Clinton came. Uh, mm -hmm. She's the founder of this project. Yes, she of course. came to um, Sweden to visit us, mm -hmm. and I was not even invited on stage to stand mm -hmm. with my husband and her, mm -hmm. and she yelled in front of the entire embassy, get up here, Natalia. Mm -hmm. And she said, I'm so glad I see that you all really like Mark, Ambassador mm -hmm. Brzezinski. Mm -hmm. He's a great guy. He worked for my husband. But I hope you do realize Natalia is going to be the real ambassador here. <laughs> She's the future. She, and people's mouths dropped. Oh, it's fantastic. Like she got it. Right, right. Um, 
but but, but you were saying that what you it was really tough, tough. and it oh, was so at, interesting. At first I thought it was an age thing. I was yeah. really young. I yeah, was yeah. 26, 27. Yeah. Probably you know the State Department was afraid to send me there. Right, they right, were asking right. my husband, "Will your wife be okay? You right, know, is right. she going to tweet up a storm or something?" Yes, yes, yes. Um, but I heard from you know friends of mine that were twice my age that were in Austria. I mean, they were not in very conservative countries where they weren't even allowed to go to events alone. Wow. The Foreign Service is one of the most you know. That's why it's undergoing a lot of change now. It's mm. one of the, with millennials, it's one of the most conservative kind of So interesting. Because wow. one spouse has to follow the other. Yes, of course. Because of rules and yeah. conflicts of interest. Yes. And that becomes very tough. Yes, so um, interesting. So it's very hard to have a family. And so it was, and it continues now in tech, as yeah. I'm in the tech world. I mean, yes. I thought the music world was hip, cool, and like, yeah. it's run by old men. Sorry <laughs> to say, I like you all out there. Well, well, I think you're hitting. It's, you know, it's, it's. But I think you're hitting. LA, I think you're hitting. Yeah. LA. It's, it is very conservative in some ways. Well, um, I, I think what you're hitting is the other key issue, right? Which is, look, when um, there are very enlightened men, I'm married to one. I'm sure you're married to yeah. one, and there's a lot of, and I mean, the board list is full of men Absolutely. who spend all their time um, building great and diverse teams, right? But the converse is if you have a generation of companies that are entirely run by men, the perspective of kind of uh, of a woman in the leadership role and the CEO role is missing, right? Absolutely. So so I think even tech needs to find and promote more women leaders to the C-suite and Absolutely. to the CEO role um, for there to be, I think, true representation of kind of women's needs as consumers, women's needs as employees, women's needs as shareholders, right? They just can never be fully represented if only one gender, whichever the gender, you know, exactly. is, is in control of, you know, of, of all the companies. And so, um, yeah, I don't know that tech is, is, is uh, better or worse. I would say that tech right now is shining a big light on itself on this problem, right? And, uh, and this comes to sort of one of the other points you mentioned, which is for tech company composition to change, we need more women to get funded. And we need more venture capital sort of moving in that direction. Well, let's talk about that a bit. Because yes. as I was thinking about our interview and how, what does it have to do with politics, yes. I realized really, you know, a woman entrepreneur being able to go to a venture capitalist, go to Menlo Park and pitch and get mm -hmm. money is yes. very similar to a female candidate going to a group uh, donors dinner pitching herself. Yes, her actually, you know, you made that money. you made that point um, to me, and you're absolutely right. That moving into political a lot of money office. To run for office. <laughs> is as much about fundraising as it is for a company. That's so exactly true. What advice do you have? And I think we can wrap up here because yes. I think it's so important. How does a woman sell herself well in a way that evokes confidence mm -hmm. and allows her to also talk about money? It's not an yes. ugly thing. It's yes. something that is a huge part of all of these worlds. Yes. Uh, how do you do that? Well, you, you hit it. So um, so number one, um, somebody, somebody said this phrase to me yesterday. It's so true. Um, I was with a philanthropist who... Who, who talked about his three boys, and he said, you know what, they are CBI. And I said, what is CBI? He's like, my boys are like men. They're certain but inaccurate. When they say <laughs> things, I thought it was a great phrase. He's like, you know, and it's, I think this is true, like that men, you know, not all men, but there is this sort of stereotype that I have seen myself where, you know, men come in with this, like, certainty in what they say, whether it's true or not, or whether, quite frankly, they even are sure if it's true, but the way that message is conveyed is it must be true because they said it in such a way. Whereas people often say, like, women don't want to say something if they're not sure it's true. They don't want to take a job if it's not sure they're ready. They're not sure they're ready for it. So people call it the confidence gap. I think what I would say is when you think about pitching, you know, when you pitch a startup on day one, everybody, on day one of a political campaign, everybody has an equal chance, right, of making it or not making. Like, so... 
So you can either, you know, pitch a large vision or pitch a small vision. Either way, you have the same kind of chances of success because on day one, there's no data. There is no, right? Starting companies like starting a political campaign, you don't know yet what you're going to do. But your job is to come with a vision. So, I was, so Rita Hoffman has once said that, look, it takes as much energy to sell something big as sell something small. Why sell something small? So my first piece of advice is, like, if you're going to take that time to sell a vision, sell a large vision. Like, because, you know, taking all that time to sell a small vision, it's not that engaging for the other person for you. And I, I'm particularly saying Silicon Valley, you are in an environment where you are competing against massive ideas. Yeah. I mean, not just small ideas, like not even large ideas, like massive ideas. And quite frankly, nobody knows on day one who's going to make it or not. So if you want to be in the game, you do actually need to pitch a large market opportunity and a large vision, right? And I'm sure the same holds for a political office. Number two, I think, you know, people are afraid to sell, but I would say the best selling and the best no and the best power comes from knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So, yes, like selling, if it's if you're not comfortable with it, it takes prep work. It takes not just knowing your material deeply. It takes practicing pitching. Like, so don't be prepared. Don't be afraid of selling, but you can sell best from deep knowledge, right? So sell from a point of deep knowledge, and you are in a better position. If you don't have knowledge, then go get educated so that by the time you have to pitch, right? And then number three, ask for more than you need ask for more than you need. The biggest single problem people have is they ask for less than they need and they can't get all the way to their milestone or their goal and they're left in the cold where the other person who asked for more than they need actually got maybe just what they needed to make it all the way. And you ask for less than you need, well, you're certainly not going to make it all the way. So ask for more than you need. That is great advice and I'm going to tell my mother because she always tells me that I want too much. But I think that's a good thing for a woman. <laughs> so is my husband. Mom Join is the listening. club. Thanks to Kinder. Uh -huh.